Hello all, this is Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We are hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed medically and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, one of your hosts. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper because we figured, you know what, medical podcast, good to have a doctor. I'm happy to have that position with you. (laughs) How are you, Peter? I'm good. And if you could see this, you could actually see the degree. Uh, Anna Vicino is with us. I am the undoctor. The, uh, yes, you are. I she's don't know why furthest, I'm here. Let's be I honest. I saw her grade. She, she's the furthest away from medical degree of the bunch. I think I'm kidding. Exactly. I'm kidding. I, I agreed to do this show because I just wanted access to you guys. So. That's exactly right. And, and now you can't get rid of me. And we needed a good voice. And we have one. And we have one. And guess what we're going to be talking about today? Fibromyalgia. Does everybody know what fibromyalgia is? I know Dr. Kipper does, but we're going to find out more about uh, fibromyalgia and how it's linked to mortality. We're going to be talking about common myths about hypnosis, which I'm excited to hear about because I'm like, does that even work? I feel like I've done hypnosis and I'm like, that was relaxing, but I don't think anything happened. So I'm excited to talk about that. There was a, a whole run on, I'm going to be hypnotized to give up smoking. Remember that whole thing? Oh yeah. That was like a big eighties and nineties thing, right? Right, right. And then you always know one guy who lost 80 pounds because he went into a hypnotist for diet. Right. And then you find out it was his cousin. He was just lying, dieted regularly with amphetamines and sent everybody to his cousin. <laughs> it was just fen fed the whole time. <laughs> That's exactly right. Interesting that hypnosis has been used in medicine. This could be finally the definitive word. Also, we've got something fascinating, and this just happened. The first over-the-counter birth control pill is out, will be out yes, shortly. Yes, very cool. Lots to question about that. And then we've got a caller who wants to talk about depression and treatments for depression. So it's a varied show, all with topics that affect every single one of us. So let's go. Our first topic, fibromyalgia, you know, it's, it's, it's a really difficult disease and it's people are experiencing tremendous amounts of pain with the symptoms of fibromyalgia. So it's been linked to an increase in mortality, which makes sense because it sounds pretty awful to live with. So what's going on with fibromyalgia? Fibromyalgia goes well beyond the muscle and joint pain. It's a disease. It's a chronic disease. It's characterized by pain, uh, insomnia, depression, fatigue. A lot of things go along with that. And because it coexists with a lot of other diseases, and as you said, it carries a higher mortality rate. And there was a very interesting study. They took 500 studies on fibromyalgia over 10 years, and they examined over 200,000 people with this disease. And they found an association of three things, of an increased risk for infection, accidents, and suicide. And each one has a slightly different reason, but jump in, you guys, if you can understand or guess what some of these reasons are. I'm projecting not from what any of the clues you've given us, but I just know from hearing about fibromyalgia forever, first years and years of frustration with people getting diagnosed, thinking it's a mental disease, thinking something's wrong with you. So It's all in your head. It's all in your head. It presents Mm -hmm. with, so that's got to create the depression. And I don't know today if a lot of professionals are trained to do the right tests, to do the right things, to talk, do the talk therapy, whatever it takes to diagnose fibromyalgia, or also have the patience to treat it with somebody who you're not sure, they can't define the symptoms. It's, it's a really, it's, that, is what I said pretty correct, David? As All far of that as- is true, Peter. And, and if we break it down into the specifics, starting with 
infections. You know, why would people with fibromyalgia get more infections? Right. And these are infections on every level, from bacteria to viruses to parasites. And what actually happens, there's a connection between the brain and the immune system. And when someone has an acute stress, their stress response activates and actually disrupts this normal connection between the brain and the, and the immune response. So the immune response gets turned upside down Gee. and people then become more susceptible. It's far more complicated than that, obviously. And it involves the cytokines that are produced in a stress reaction. But an acute stress is often the precipitant of the, the disease. Um, the good news is that <laughs> all these people, fibromyalgia, tends to have uh, no association with cancer death. So there's one little bit of good news. Accidents. Any guess why they might be more susceptible to accidents? Some of what you said, Peter, is true. You know, when you're injured and you get up and you think that you can walk on your injury or whatever, and then you're like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, I would imagine somebody with fibromyalgia, I don't know, you might guess that you could do something that you couldn't. Or the pain, is it an area that can weaken them, whatever? Mm -hmm. or, exactly. Know. It's all of that. You know, there's a lack of sleep, there's fatigue, uh, concentration issues with this disease. So they're more prone to accidents. Whiplash gives you a 13 times higher risk for developing fibromyalgia. So if you think about that, wow. how many people have had whiplash? I bet all of us have at some point. And then there's a suicide increase risk. I think some of this is obvious, but there's also a threefold increase in suicide in this, mm. in this group. Also, Peter, and this is what you alluded to, there's the sort of the strain of having a chronic illness and being in chronic pain and right. being tired. And another big part of this, which you also touched on, is the medical community's response to fibromyalgia. Yep. There are no biomarkers for fibromyalgia. It's not like a cancer, diabetes, or something that we can have a test and say, okay, you have this. And it's very similar to what happened with Epstein-Barr. When I started practice, we were seeing these people that came in and they looked like they had the worst case of mono you'd ever seen. And a lot of these people were neurologically affected because Epstein-Barr is an inflammatory disease that goes to all the different organs, including the brain. And so people had a lot of mental relationship and decompensation with this. I actually hospitalized two patients uh, early on, and we had no biomarkers. And then all of a sudden, um, Mr. Epstein and Mr. Barr came along, identified the virus. They actually didn't identify the virus. <laughs> there was a third guy, and I don't remember his name, but he never... He never got credit, but I think they were in the room, but I don't think they're the guys that actually, in fact, I know they weren't the guys that actually figured it out. So there's that. And so doctors also, because there's a psychological component to this disease, doctors don't have the patience right. uh, and the time or the training to deal with that. If, if the appointment, if the average appointment is six minutes in a doctor's office, you're not going to get too deep into somebody's psychological reaction. But it's a very real disease, and it's, it's interesting. The diagnosis for this is clinical. Like I said, there's no biomarker. And two things have to happen. You have to have pain for over three months in several areas of the body. And you also have to have tenderness when someone pokes a muscle, and they've identified 18 of those points. 
you have to register 11 out of the 18 marks of, of, of pain and, and tenderness. So that's as sophisticated as we are now. It will change. I'm sure we will figure this out. So like if you have diabetes, you're supposed to go to an endocrinologist. If you have cancer, you're supposed to go to an oncologist. Is there a, a rheumatologist? Partic- a rheumatologist. Okay. Yes. Rheumatologist. And they actually use hydroxychloroquine for fibromyalgia. I'm not sure it works, but it does have a place in the world. Wow. I think the take-home message here for all of us, because we all know somebody that has this, right, um, is to not only take them seriously, but also consider their mental status. If they have a higher likelihood of suicide, you have to be sensitive to that mm-hmm. and make sure that there's some kind of monitoring. Accidents, same issue. You know, Make sure that their sleep is maximized, however you can do that. And again, most of this uh, falls on the laps of the doctors. And that's, again, part of the time. And, and yeah, I remember you tell it stuck out with me. That's why I brought it up years ago. You told me you had a patient with fibromyalgia and you told me that it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience because a lot of people weren't even treated it back then. They just, it was, they were very dismissive. And we can't treat it. That's, that's really the other part of this equation. I joke about hydroxychloroquine, which is a treatment for this, but there are no great treatments. You know, if you look at pain, they're getting opiates and and so there's that potential problem oh yeah you don't want to get hooked on the opiates then next we're going to be talking about common myths surrounding hypnosis i guess some studies came out to verify the veracity of hypnosis and i'm curious to hear about this because back in the early 2000s my husband's aunt paid for us to go to a hypnosis seminar and it was very interesting but i was like i don't think that this works on me my cousin ernie uh, for a day and a half was a chicken <laughs> he's still 20 percent chicken yeah and he kept looking for frank purdue in the phone book it was really sad <laughs> i'd like to get into the chicken part in a minute <laughs> because there are some myths about hypnosis that i think would be a hundred percent cousin ernie would be interesting to talk about so yes, people don't really understand this. Most people think it's fake. And yet we have MRI evidence now of what happens during hypnotherapy. We've identified a few areas in the brain. The occipital area where we process our visual input, it lights up during hypnosis. And there's two other areas, and this gets into left-right brain. So just to review this, the left-brained person on the left side, you're doing your intellectual, cognitive, focus, executive functioning. And on the right side of the brain is the more creative, emotional side of the brain. So to truly be hypnotized, you have to have some connection between those two sides because what's happening is you're experiencing something creative, something relaxing, And there has to be a physical reaction to that, which ultimately actually becomes focus. And there have to be some connections between these two areas. And it just so happens that there's a pathway that lights up between the prefrontal cortex on the left side and the cingulate cortex, which is hovering right around the amygdala, which is where all these emotional things come from. So we have actually identified parts of the brain and it makes sense given the fact that you have to be you have to be very focused when you're doing this and you have to be in some kind of trance like state which comes from the right side can you guess what two medical problems respond best to hypnosis 
rash. Beep. I just, I went for it, you guys. I went for it. You were dead wrong on that, and I'm yeah. mm-hmm. proud to just call you on it. Yeah, okay. ADD and PTSD respond oh. very well to hypnotherapy. This is important because there are a lot of people that have PTSD. I think most people have some PTSD, and there are certainly a lot of people that have focusing issues. So these two uh, diagnoses respond very well. When you say very well, David, what's the threshold of who can hypnotize somebody and how? Is there like, you just did something where you press 11 out of 18 pressure points and you can tell you got the disease? Is there a checklist for a practitioner? that we go to that Laurie, I, or whatever. So we know, we know that it's, he's doing it right. And the, the things lighten up. How do you know that? Hypnotherapists are well-trained. I mean, they, they study this, this is an art form. And so it's not just somebody waving a stopwatch in front of you. Again, a lot of it is about trust. If you trust and believe in your hypnotherapist and you set your goals, you're likely to get some good results. Everyone, by the way, can be hypnotized. If you think about what this is, it's a trance-like state. And during this trance, we engage our emotions and our imagination, and then we have to focus on that. And when we do that, the whole world sort of shuts off into what we're doing. When I was in school growing up, I, I, I drew and painted. And when I was painting, Laura, you must feel the same thing. When I was painting, and even now, if I'm painting or drawing, nothing else matters. Uh, I'm not thinking about eating, showering, bathroom. You get so focused on this. And that's basically hypnosis. You're in a trance where you're doing something creative, and you're so focused that the rest of the world is sort of shut out. So the reality is we, we do hypnotize ourselves on a regular basis. Um, Peter, to get <laughs> to the chicken question, there are a few myths that I think would be interesting. And one is that, you know, one is I don't want to be hypnotized because I don't want to be turned into a chicken or I don't want to sing a, a Taylor Swift song when I don't know how to sing. What is that? And what that is is stage hypnosis. And stage hypnosis are people that are the most receptive to hypnotherapy. If you ever notice, if you're in one of these performances where someone brings in the hypnotist and people raise their hands, it's those people that are raising their hands. No, that not are true, so not true, not true. Max Maven, the reason I answered, Max Maven at a show in a small room, Jason Alexander, one of our good friends, and um, a, I shouldn't say amateur magician, magician, took me to the Magic Castle. And we went into this small showroom, and Max Maven, who had a cape and a painted-on pump, uh, widow's peak, actually picked me with a bunch of other people on stage and hypnotized all of us in a row to do stuff. And I remember vividly that I was not hypnotized, but didn't want to ruin the show <laughs> by not by saying it. trying trying not to go along. You know what I'm saying? It, it wasn't I was lying. But it was, it's odd. You were in an odd, it is an odd place when a guy's talking to you that way and doing something rhythmically in front of you. It's like a meditative thing. So I get that part of it. But that also brings up why the non-staged hypnosis works because the subject, Peter Tilden, wants to support the hypnotherapist. And so there is some component of that. 
but you're right. You're not going to be turned into a chicken if you don't want to be. You have full capacity. You're, you're actually awake. Another myth is that you'll be made to reveal very deep, dark secrets uh, when you're in a hypnotic state. And this is just not true. You have to be willing to, yeah. Yes, you can if you want to. And the other thing I found interesting about this myth is that people will lie under hypnosis or they will stretch the truth um, because their, their perception is a little bit off now and they have full reign to go ahead and make some nuances to what may have actually been the truth, which is why if you're um, giving testimony in a court, they're not going to accept a hypnosis-generated testimony. What about the other big part of hypnosis that was, oh, my God, I went to a hypnotherapist, and they, I remembered stuff from eighth grade, and I regressed back to places that I, I didn't remember, but it took me into the bowels of my brain, if there are bowels in the brain. Um, and I regressed, and I thought of memories that I didn't recall before, how on a scale of one to ten. You were focused on that. You were focused on thinking about that part of your life. And those images are back there. They're not all back there, but they're back there. I mean, if you think about what happens when we go to sleep at night, we have all these things that happen to us during the day, right? And at night when we're asleep, something in the brain has to sort that deck out. And I'm going to keep this one. These I'm going to toss out. I'm, so there are there's selective memory that happens. I will say when I went to the hypnosis class, they, and this is again, like 20 years ago, but they were like, they were mostly focused on teaching you how to do regular hypnosis, which I really liked. And I like, cause I like meditating. And so I, I, I liked the things that I learned from it. But I, I, I also realized how much of a control freak I was because I wasn't the one who's susceptible to doing it. But he was also, he did a brief segment on like stage hypnosis. He's like, I know you guys aren't going to become stage hypnotists, but they do really quickly and really deftly pick the people who are not susceptible and get them off stage. If you notice that, if you've ever, you've watched the show, they're like, they bring a bunch of people up. So Peter was rolling with it. But if you're you not, know? you're gone. You're, you're gone. Not, no, no. They're like, you can go sit down you, and they keep the, and they can tell like right away, like who are the people who they think are going to be the most fun and go for it, you know? And you brought up, Anna, an interesting point about self-hypnosis. And self-hypnosis is something that people can do. If you're looking for a good book, Herbert Benson, who's a professor at Harvard, wrote this book, The Relaxation Response. And it's been around forever. And I've read this book. I've also spoken to him about this. And he does a lot of studies on the emotional and the mental issues relating to health. But the book is very simple to read. And if you're interested in this, it's really very enlightening. And David, the definitive word on, re on regression and past memory re recollection, oh, yeah. accurate or not? Probably not accurate. Probably not. For the reason you just said, Peter, is that when they check the data on when someone says, yeah, I was a cowboy when I was, you know, there's no record of any of that. I had one of those sessions. Everybody, when they say, I, I went to a place in my past life, they were Nepal. You know how many Napoleons there are? He says, <laughs> nobody was a serf and a, God, I was, I lived in the street in squalor. I was a serf. I, I did a session. My daughter gave me a session with like this renowned, you know, past life regression person, hypnotist. And I just felt like the whole time, first of all, it was really sad and depressing, the whole thing. So I was one of those who was like, oh, I was really poor and everybody died. <laughs> I was like, we couldn't eat, I was starving. Like, it was terrible. But like, 
and, and I woke up just like crying. I was like, well, that wasn't fun. And um, I would rather be the, you know, Cleopatra. But it was really interesting because I was, I felt after I woke up, I was like, I think I just made that whole thing up. Like, I think I got one image and then created a whole story. Because let's be honest, I have a vivid imagination. (laughs) The reason I wanted to speak about hypnosis is that I'm now using, I have one hypnotherapist that I'm really impressed with, but I have a lot of people with chronic pain, whether it's from cancer, whether it's from fibromyalgia, whether it's from MS. I mean, a lot of people with chronic pain, and we're trying to do everything we can that's non-pharmaceutical. And I've seen really great results with people that are being treated for pain. That's terrific. So it's meditative. It's exactly what it is. And so it is for those listening, if you have friends and family out there that are struggling with this issue, this is this is a viable option. That's good. That's good to know because sometimes it is mocked and reviled. And so we want to know. This week's This Just Happened is huge um, because we're talking about abortion issues and we're talking about birth control issues. The first over-the-counter birth control pill is out or coming out, David, any any moment? It's going to be out in the spring of 24. That's great. Young ladies, congratulations. We didn't have that experience back in the 90s. And healthy, David, it's healthy and affordable, I hope. We don't know about the affordability, although we think it will be affordable. But yes, it's, it is healthy, it's safe. It's actually been around in a prescription form for 50 years. This isn't, and it's in over, I think, 100 different countries. So this is not a new product. And it's interesting how this product works. This is called a mini pill. And what this pill does is that it's, a, it's progesterone. And what does progesterone do to the cycling? So when you release an egg from the ovary, that's ovulation, the body puts out an elevated amount of progesterone. And why does it do that? It does that because higher levels of progesterone inhibit the ovary from putting out another egg. So that's why you get one egg released, because immediately progesterone is released. So this pill is progesterone. So now you're walking around with a slightly elevated level of progesterone And the ovary is tricked into thinking it's just released an egg and it doesn't need to release any more eggs. So that's how this works. And it's very safe. Uh, It's really, if you think about it, for especially younger people, teenagers and adolescents, can't get to a doctor easily, don't really understand how these pills work, aren't particularly um, compliant with how these medicines can work. this is a this is a wonderful thing. You're going to be seeing these things in 7-Elevens. You're going to see them Great. in grocery stores. You're going to see them in pharmacies. So they'll be available everywhere. I want I want the birth control pill Pez dispenser for every sexually active young lady who needs it. What I didn't realize, the statistic that blew my mind was in just reading about this, that out of of the six point and David knows six point one million pregnancies last year, almost half were unintended. And three quarters of the women that were polled all want an over-the-counter pill. And safe. And again, safe. I mean, I, you know, you hear through the years that the tall people pay for IUDs for all kinds of birth control that works but can cause a toll. And, and also the medical ones that are drugs. 
So this is this as safe as David because it's been tested so long? Yes, and there's there's two populations that can't take this pill, and those are women that have had breast cancer, because breast cancers most of them are hormonally related, usually to the estrogen, but we stay away from that. And people that have had undiagnosed vaginal bleeding. Uh, there's some question about how progesterone enters into that, but basically it's very safe. It's been around, you know, forever. So are we hoping that there's going to be more that tick, you know what I mean? That, that come out? Cause I mean, there's estrogen based, there's all kinds of birth control pills that do all sorts of wonderful things to prevent pregnancy. Are, are, are we hoping that more of these come out or is it just this one specific pill that's going to be the over the counter option? So far, this this one has proven effective. Estrogen carries its own risks that are, I think are greater than the progesterone. So I think that's why they focused on progesterone. You know, the, the, the standard birth control pills were combinations of estrogen and progesterone. Right. And that's how those pharmaceuticals work. And they time it in such a way that part of your menstrual cycle, you're getting some estrogen and the other part you're getting progesterone. But this is pretty simple. In today's Hey, What About Me segment, which is your opportunity to ask Dr. Kipper a question, we had a caller, David, who wanted to know about depression in their family and anything new to help with depression, which uh, impacts a lot of people. And here's, here's the caller. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Brendan, and my mother suffered from depression for, God, seemingly her whole life. Uh, things have gotten a little harder for her lately as my father's grown sick, and she's taken to caring for him. And in the past, we've tried anything we could to help ease her pain, including shock therapy. And I was just wondering if you had any other suggestions that we could turn to to help her better enjoy life. Thank you. Brendan, I'm sorry that you're going through this and you're not alone. Uh, I think statistically 40% of people that have severe depression don't get fixed and they're, they're untreatable. So this is a great option, ketamine now becomes a great option for this. And ketamine was studied in 2019. The first studies came out with nasal sprays. And they gave these people six doses of ketamine over a two-week period, and they got better immediately. After one dose, their depression started to lift, and there was durability to this. After these results, these clinics (laughs) sprung up like weeds and there's hundreds of these clinics around using ketamine but ketamine is has to be has to be controlled in a way that you're not getting too much there are negatives to ketamine ketamine can cause hallucinations it can cause nausea and a lot of people do very well with ketamine in some of these infusions and then the minute you stop the infusion they're back to where they were so there there's a an art form to this and those clinics are out there. If you're thinking of this, Brendan, or anyone else listening, ask your doctor to vet them because there are a lot of clinics that aren't really so effective. And there are side effects. Blood pressure can go up, dizziness, nausea, as I said. And ketamine's a, it's a psychedelic. It causes dissociation, which is basically altering the perception of your surroundings, your thoughts, your emotions. Uh, it's derived from angel dust, PCP. It's a little safer what? than PCP. By the way, anybody of a certain age that's listening and heard that went, excuse me? Because you grew <laughs> up going, 
hey, my friend was with a biker at a concert. Right. And he slipped him some angel dust. Right. Slammed to back to the future. And now it's, well, we're going to get some angel dust and we're going to give it to you for your depression. <laughs> that is like mind war. That just blows. Yeah, that's crazy. Some of us grew up with Timothy Leary and we understood how those studies were going. And John Hopkins were the ones that have really been dealing with all these psychedelics. Right. Psilocybin. Psilocybin, I think, is going to be the answer to this. Because psilocybin has some very positive effects and they're microdosing it. So that's five to 10% of the dose that would give you the hallucinations and the euphoria. It's a very small watered down dose, but we're seeing tremendous advantages with pain, depression, anxiety. David, you make this sound too good. You realize producer Laurie was one plane ticket away from going to another country. <laughs> to an ayahuasca ceremony with somebody she never met, didn't know, and was willing to throw her guts up. Well, she obviously it. got a recommendation. She's not just going to go to a complete stranger. My only, and this is the serious question, is how does a doctor vet the right clinic where they kind of are careful with the dosing and are doing it more scientifically than a quick buck type of ketamine clinic, which can do damage and it's dangerous. And it's a bigger problem with ketamine than it is with psilocybin because psilocybin now is really in these major centers. John Hopkins and Brendan, for your family, uh, UC San Francisco has clinical trials going on. Again, for listeners, if you're interested in pursuing this, they have six different kinds of trials that they're looking for volunteers. And one of them is on palliative care. So uh, a phone call to UC San Francisco to find out how they can enroll. They're also trying to figure out how it works at these low doses. Right. So there are quote unquote healthy people doing the microdosing and they're studying their brains with MRIs to see yeah. where all this goes. I just got to say right now to all of you listening, if I have to go into palliative care, I went done at the Tim Leary Ram Das Center uh, so that I'm tripping the entire, entire time out, that I'm tripping my way out. You know you what I'm saying? You don't want it micro-dosed. You want mega-dosed. Macro. Macro, mega. Heading into the future, if you know what I'm saying. That's all the because, doses. Because why not at that point? I just want to say this, too. When I started getting the ketamine ads from companies in my Instagram feed, that's when I was like, mm, I don't know about that. It's time to vet some people. That The world has changed when I'm getting those ads tar targeted. We are back with our recap. We talked about fibromyalgia, first of all, and the um, what's going on, that all the different considerations to uh, hopefully help people not have as high of a mortality rate. And it's real and be sensitive to those people that are suffering from it and pay attention to their mental status. And then we talked about hypnosis. And apparently during this show, Dr. Kipper hypnotized all of us. We just didn't know it. And that was very easy because you guys are so suggestible. Yes. And we actually had to stop the recording because Peter was barking like a dog. And then clucking like a chicken. And clucking like a chicken. And I went into five minutes of past life regression, but it wasn't my life, which was, it was my neighbor's. So the whole thing was off. But think about this as an option for friends and family members that are going through chronic illness with pain and depression and anxiety there might be a, a place for that. That's pretty amazing. Um, first over-the-counter birth control pill is coming in the spring, correct? Coming in the spring, it's gonna be hopefully reasonably priced and you'll be able to get it when you buy your lotto tickets in 7-Eleven. And then of course, we had a caller, Brandon, who was calling for his mom who was depressed and David suggested potentially 
ketamine. So psychedelics are are back, <laughs> and some of them are in small doses, and they do have benefits. You have to be careful uh, which clinic you're going to. But I think over the next few years, we're going to be using psilocybin and ketamine a lot more commonly to replace some of the things that have been problematic, like opiates. By the way, if you guys out there are listening and you have a question for Dr. Kipper, head on over to bedsidematters.org and send us a message, leave us a message, and Dr. Kipper might just answer your question on the air. And he's got a lot of questions that he answers in his book, Override, which is all about brain chemistry and your biology and why you do the certain things that you do and why you can't break certain habits. It's your brain chemistry. So check that out. And Anna Ficino, go to her site. She's got uh, recipes and sauces and spices, her cookbooks, all about gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb eating. It's anavicino.com. Thank you, producer Laurie Creamy. And to everybody else listening, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday, so follow us, like us, and have a wonderful, great, and healthy week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.